When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Fionn McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, about the drooping and solitary, and ghosts who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens, fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore or mythology. We retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. O'Lan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 234 of Fireside. Today on the Irish storytelling podcast, we have our Halloween special, Welcome to Fireside of Horror 5. So, if this is your very first time listening to the podcast, this episode is a little bit different to what we normally do on the podcast. We usually alternate between stories from folklore and mythology with my own adaptations and my own retellings. But for our seasonal specials, uh, just before Halloween and just before Christmas, I do readings from other works uh, that don't necessarily fall into the remit of folklore mythology, but certainly works that would have been inspired greatly by folklore, mythology, or legend. And these are two classic examples of that, two classics of Gothic literature, both from the early Gothic period and the later Gothic period, one of which is our own homegrown story here in Ireland. We will have a tale from Dracula by Bram Stoker, which feels particularly appropriate, uh, considering we did an episode on the Overtok, the Celtic vampire, a couple of weeks ago, which has got me back. And that episode has proved very popular uh, since it's been released. Um, so it's nice to have a reading from now the novel that Overtok possibly inspired. And we will also have another reading, which I will get to in a little bit. Because if this is your, if you are a returning listener, thank you so much for your continued support. All of the usual ways you can support the podcast. You can follow me over on Instagram at FiresideBard. You can email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. You can buy my book, Garden Sea and Neo Myth of Home, soon to be celebrating its second anniversary. That is available from paperback from the Headstuff website or in Kindle version at Amazon. But we can ship the paperback all around the world. And the final way you can do you can support the podcast is by joining Headstuff Plus on the brand new Headstuff website. Uh, Headstuff Plus is continuing to grow. It can be yours for as little as five euro a month, although you can pay more if you want. And you can gain access to bonus material, not just for Fireside, but for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network. The Headstuff Plus is about to start instigating a free trial offer as well, which I'll announce when it has come out for anyone who wants to sample it. Another new feature coming up is the the, uh, possibility of ad-free listening on your 
on the platform of your choice. So if you listen to this podcast on Spotify and you're inundated by constant ads throughout the episode and you want a more streamlined process, you can join Heads of Plus and select Spotify as your ad-free platform. So the network is continuing to grow and continuing to be more, become more accessible and useful for you, the listeners. So that's all available in the links in the description below. Join Headstuff Plus. It's wonderful to be recording another Halloween special of the podcast, the fifth Halloween special, just before we reach the fifth anniversary of this podcast. And we kind of go right to the very beginning with this one, uh, because in the very first Fireside of Horror, which I, where I sampled different works of Irish and extended Gothic literature in, and poetry and song. One of the first segments we did on that was an extract from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, as And I've talked a good bit about Dracula on the Avertok episode, for those who have listened to that recently. So I won't, I'll try not to go over some of the same points, but it has been actually a huge, huge influence on not just Gothic literature, but on world literature and later the entertainment industry, carving Dracula as one of the most recognizable names and images in the Western world, not just at Halloween. And we spoke about how Bram Stoker himself, who's a Dubliner, um, was would have been inspired immensely by the folklore mythology, which was rising as a part of the Gaelic League, around him at the time he was growing up in Ireland and the theory that Avertok, this supernatural dwarf, could perhaps have inspired his Transylvanian Count Dracula. But when we covered uh, Dracula, when we read an extract from it all those years ago, the section that we talked about was the voyage of the Demeter from the Captain's Log uh, section of the book. Because the book is written as a series of correspondence or letters, and it is an apost—I can never say that word—an apostolary novel, um, because of that. And the captain's log on the voyage of the Demeter was the most isolated. It was almost like a bottle chapter, and of this ship, um, on a voyage, um, on which its crew are slowly picked apart, and the paranoia and the hysteria surrounding the crew as to who or what is making all of its residents disappear. Um, but this time, I wanted to focus more on the novel's protagonist and main antagonist. The protagonist is a solicitor named Jonathan Harker, who's invited over to Transylvania by a mysterious patron named Count Dracula, uh, Harker believes that he's going over to this castle to assist Dracula in purchasing property in London. However, once he gets to the Transylvanian lair, Jonathan Harker realizes that not everything is as it should be. And so here we have a segment from Dracula by Bram Stoker. <laughs> Dracula. I only slept for a few hours when I went to bed, and feeling that I could not sleep any more, got up. I had hung my shaving glass by the window, and was just beginning to shave. Suddenly I felt a hand on my shoulder, and heard the Count's voice saying to me, Good morning. I started for it amazed me that I had not seen him, since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. In starting, I had cut myself slightly. He did not notice it at the moment. Having answered the Count's salutation, I turned to the glass again to see how I had been mistaken. This time there could be no error, for the man was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed, but there was no sign of a man in it, except myself. This was startling, and coming on the top of so many strange things was beginning to increase their vague feeling of uneasiness which I always have when the Count is near. 
but at the instant I saw the cut had bled a little, and the blood was trickling over my chin. I laid down the razor, turning as I did so half round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demonic fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe that it was ever there. Take care, he said. Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. Then, seizing the shaving glass, he went on. And this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. Away with it! And opening the window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung out the glass, which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. Then he withdrew without a word. It is very annoying, for I do not know how I am to shave. When I went into the dining room, breakfast was prepared, but I could not find the Count anywhere, so I breakfasted alone. It is strange that as yet I have not seen the Count eat or drink. He must be a very peculiar man. After breakfast I did a little exploring in the castle. I went out on the stairs and found a room looking towards the south. Doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all locked and bolted. In no place save from the windows in the castle walls is there an available exit. I was not alone. In the moonlight opposite me there were three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time that I must be dreaming when I saw them. They threw no shadow on the floor. They came close to me and looked at me for some time and then whispered together. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing, and at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed, such a silvery, musical laugh but as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. One said, Go on, you are the first, and we shall follow. Yours is the right to begin. The other added, He is young and strong. There are kisses for us all. The fair girl advanced and bent over me till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck she actually licked her lips like an animal till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed to fasten on my throat. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in luxurious ecstasy and waited, waited with beating heart. But at that instant, another sensation swept through me as quick as lightning. I was conscious of the presence of the Count, and of his being as if lapped in a storm of fury. I saw his strong hand grasp the slender neck of the fair woman, and with giant's power draw it back. The blue eyes transformed with fury, the white teeth champing with rage, and the fair cheeks blazing red with passion. But the Count... 
Never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit. His eyes were positively blazing. The red light in them was lurid, as if the flames of hell fire blazed behind them. With a fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the woman from him, and then motioned to the others, as though he were beating them back, in a voice which, though low and almost in a whisper, seemed to cut through the air and then ring in the room, he said, How dare you touch him, any of you? How dare you cast eyes on him when I had forbidden it? Back, I tell you all. This man belongs to me. Beware how you meddle with him, or you'll have to deal with me. The fair girl turned to answer him. You yourself never loved. You never love. On this the other women joined, and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laughter rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fiends. Then the Count turned, after looking at my face attentively, and said in a soft whisper, Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Well, now I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go, go. Are we to have nothing tonight, said one of them, with a low laugh as she pointed to the bag which he had thrown upon the floor, and which moved as though there were some living thing within it. For answer he nodded his head. One of the women jumped forward and opened it. If my ears did not deceive me, there was a gasp and a low wail of a half-smothered child. The women closed round whilst I was aghast with horror, but as I looked they disappeared, and with them the dreadful bag. They simply seemed to fade into the rays of the moonlight and pass out through the window, for I could see outside the dim, shadowy forms for a moment before they entirely faded away. Then the horror overcame me, and I sank down unconscious. This castle is a veritable prison, and I am a prisoner. And there we have a wonderful extract from the masterpiece that is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, I got this piece from uh, a series of lectures I did last year in my old school when I was invited back to just to talk to some of the students about the origins of Halloween. And I was trying to make it accessible, so trying to talk about some of the big hitters like Dracula and Frankenstein and Banshees, etc. And so in my research on Dracula, which led me to the Avertok and to a lot of the lore I discussed on that episode... I wanted to find an introductory, I wanted to read a passage from the book, and I was particularly interested in a section where Jonathan Harker starts to realize that Dracula is a vampire, and how that is written, and it's a section I edited slightly, um, didn't obviously change anything, but just cut certain uh, sections out of it, because it's quite a long chapter. And I wanted to include all these elements I wanted. And you see the kind of mystery novel way in which the, the book is written. And all of the all of the staples that we associate with uh, vampires being born, essentially. Um, Bram Stoker by no means invented the, the vampire. But as I said before, he, he certainly cemented it in the public consciousness in the same way that Robert Louis Stevenson did with Pirates, with Treasure Island. So we have this wonderful scene where Harker is shaving and we have no reflection from Count Dracula. Then, of course, we have the blood trickling down its throat and Dracula being drawn immediately towards it and grabbing him by the throat 
And also what's around his throat is a pair of rosary beads and a metal crucifix. And vampires being allergic to silver and to all things holy as well. And the idea of the crucifix as an anti-demonic charm. And then we are told that Dracula never eats or drinks. And then finally we have this wonderful encounter with these three vampiric women. A former former prey of Count Dracula who now are beginning to amass his army of the undead. Who And there is such a... Throughout the novel there is such a, like a sexually charged energy. Um, the blood is constantly up in this book, to pardon the, the the phrase, which is very appropriate considering blood is so uh, much a part of this novel. Um, but there is always this wonderful, wonderful tension and energy between all the characters, not just between these women and Harker in this moment, but, but even between Dracula himself and Harker and and to the other women and the other men in the novel and um, there's always this wonderfully wonderfully charged energy and this is a one this is an excellent example of that when these three women encounter harker in the darkness and want to sed- it's the energy that is both seductive and murderous at the same time and i think that's what makes it so fascinating to read it's such a great example of late victorian literature um when there was such an obsession with propriety, but also darkness and death. And we see that on display here. And then, of course, Dracula rescues Harker because he's all his. He's not for his his um, minions to dispose of. And, Hark- and Dracula gives them a bag containing a half-smothered child. So we have a an awfully, awfully brutal ending to this chapter and this wonderful final line which is this house is a veritable prison and I am a prisoner so yes it's a great I think it's a, out of context it's a great example of what the book is like for anyone who hasn't got a chance to read, read Dracula or just has this image in their head of vampires on Halloween or some of the many 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 movie adaptations both good and bad but the, the novel still justifies its existence and is still unlike any adaptation by how it is written and by the themes it explores, which are kind of astonishing for its time and and how fresh it still feels. So particularly at this time of year, this is why I do these Firesides of ours to both improve my own writing by getting inside this mindset of these masterpieces of literature, but also to encourage others who may not have come across, because I only read Dracula for the first time, you know, when I started this podcast about five or five years ago. Um, but it is now one that I always revisit and is one of my favorites. So um, this Halloween season, or it's not even necessarily seasonal, um, because, you know, when... Stoker wrote it, it wasn't intended to be a Halloween book. Um, But I do highly recommend it for anyone looking for a new read of gothic literature, something spooky and wonderful, or if it's never, if you've always wanted to read Dracula, now is your opportunity. And with that in mind, so Dracula came out in, first published in uh, 1897, but 50 years before that, in 1847, the Gothic literature movement was really kicking off. So like, Dracula is actually quite a late Gothic novel when you think it's 1897. And, you know, within 20 years after that, you're, you're into, you know, Joyce and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Faulkner. And literature is about to have a very, very drastic change. So Stoker was kind of a, a a late addition to that, but who was a very early addition and a great titan of Gothic literature was were was and were um with Charlotte Bronte and her sisters um Anne and Emily. And the Bronte sisters and particularly Charlotte and Emily created these masterworks of 
both the gothic genre and world literature in general. Um, and so Emily Bronte is probably the more more famous now um, because of the impact of her one and only novel, Wuthering Heights, um, which is another great gothic masterpiece. But what I'd like to talk today is Charlotte's novel, uh, Jane Eyre, which was accepted for publication after uh, Wuthering Heights was, and one of Anne Bronte, the, the lesser-known Bronte sister, one of her works as well. But Jane Eyre was published first. and so the, But, of course, it being the mid-1800s, um, and them being clergymen's daughters and women, and they had to publish them under pseudonyms. So Jane Eyre was published under the name of Kerr Bell, and Emily Bronte published under the name Ellis Bell. I do like that they still wanted to remain siblings in these uh, in their pseudonyms. But I only read Jane Eyre itself last year while on tour in New Zealand, I think it was. I think that's where I picked it up. Either the end of Australia or the, or the middle of New Zealand. I think it was New Zealand. Um, and... I was looking for something new to read, and I love reading classics, and I love taking off um, the classics that I haven't read. But I always like to um, let my life guide my interests, particularly in reading. So I like when there's a specific reason and an excuse to read a novel. Um, And that came to me. I'd never read any of the Brontes' work and always wanted to. Um, but my, my now ex-girlfriend, Charlotte, who was fra- named Charlotte because of Charlotte Bronte and grew up in Yorkshire, um, where the Bronte sisters lived, that became kind of my window into the Bronte's work. And that was why I elected to read Jane Eyre first, kind of to contextualize and understand the world of my girlfriend at the time, um which was felt like a lovely and romantic way to read it. And even though that relationship has is no longer a thing, um, Jane Eyre is uh, something that has remained kind of with me. And when you think about, if you haven't read Jane Eyre and you just think about the, again, similar to Dracula, just countless adaptations of it, you would see it, uh, like productions of it on stage as well. When we were on tour in Australia, there was literally a production of Jane Eyre that was always like either just ahead of us or just behind us. Um, but you wouldn't immediately think Halloween and you wouldn't immediately think like gothic and horror. And it really is all of those things. And it's a long novel, but it really flows and it really nips by. And it is, again, kind of astonishing that it was written over 150 years ago. Um, for its pacing. Um, and it is one of the earliest examples of something we take for granted now, which is like a novel of like inner psychology. I think it's Bildungsroman is, is what it's called in German. Uh, a language is a novel that traces the journey of a character from their point of view, usually like a coming-of-age story, but it is entirely Jane's own like psychological development which is an incredible that it, it was written at the time at all, especially by a woman and about a young woman. And, and Jane Eyre has such wonderful agency and command and um, hope and aspirations and drive for her life um, that makes her such a compelling hero and also has this incredibly enigmatic, charismatic, dark and glorious love interest in the character of Mr. Rochester. Um, And so for this segment, which is from early in the novel, which was when I read it, the part that I thought this could be on a part of Fireside, um, is when Jane has just become a governess in Thornfield House, um, presided over by the very mysterious and absent Mr. Rochester. The only other characters you need context for Mrs. Fairfax, who is the housekeeper, and then Grace Poole, who is another member of the staff, fond of a drink, um, and is quite 
singular, as she is described in the book, and unusual and mysterious herself, and Jane is quite suspectful of her. So yeah, we will chat a little bit more afterwards, but this is a segment from Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Jane Eyre. Was Mr. Rochester now ugly in my eyes? No, reader. Gratitude and many associations, all pleasurable and genial, made his face the object I best liked to see. His presence in a room was more cheering than the brightest fire. Yet I had not forgotten about his faults. Indeed, I could not, for he brought them frequently before me. He was proud, sardonic, harsh to inferiority of every description. In my secret soul, I knew that his great kindness to me was balanced by unjust severity to many others. He was moody, too, unaccountably so. I more than once, when sent for to read to him, found him sitting in his library alone, with his head bent on his folded arms, and, when he looked up, a morose, almost a malignant scowl blackened his features. But I believed that his moodiness, his harshness, and his former faults of morality, I say former, for now he seemed corrected of them, had their source in some cruel cross of fate. I believed he was naturally a man of better tendencies, higher principles, and purer tastes than such as circumstances had developed, education instilled, or destiny encouraged. I thought there were excellent materials in him, though for the present they hung together somewhat spoiled and tangled. I cannot deny that I grieved for his grief, whatever that was, and would have given much to assuage it. Though I had now extinguished my candle and was laid down in bed, I could not sleep for thinking of his look when he paused in the avenue and told how his destiny had risen up before him and dared him to be happy at Thornfield. Why not? I asked myself. What alienates him from the house? Will he leave it again soon? Mrs. Fairfax said he seldom stayed longer than a fortnight at a time, and he has now been resident eight weeks. If he does go, the change will be doleful. Suppose he should be absent spring, summer, and autumn. How joyless sunshine and fine days will seem. I hardly know whether I had slept or not after this musing. At any rate, I started wide awake on hearing a vague murmur, peculiar and lugubrious, which sounded, I thought, just above me. I wished I had kept my candle burning. The night was drearily dark. My spirits were depressed. I rose and sat up in bed, listening. The sound was hushed. I tried again to sleep but my heart beat anxiously. My inward tranquility was broken. The clock far down in the hall struck two. Just then it seemed my chamber door was touched, as if fingers had swept the panels in groping away along the dark gallery outside. I said, Who is there? Nothing answered. I was chilled with fear. This was a demoniac laugh, low, suppressed and deep, uttered, as it seemed, at the very keyhole of my chamber door. The head of my bed was near the door, and I thought at first the goblin laughter stood at my bedside, or rather crouched by my pillow. But I rose, looked round, and could see nothing, while, as I still gazed, the unnatural sound was reiterated and I knew it came from behind the panels. My first impulse was to rise and fasten the bolt, my next again to cry out, Who is there? Something gurgled and moaned. Ere long, steps retreated up the gallery towards the third-story staircase. A door had lately been made to shut in that staircase. I heard it open and close. 
and all was still. Was that Grace Poole? And is she possessed with a devil, thought I? Impossible now to remain longer by myself. I must go to Mrs. Fairfax. I hurried on my frock and a shawl. I withdrew the bolt and opened the door with a trembling hand. There was a candle burning just outside, and on the matting in the gallery. I was surprised at the circumstance, but still more was I amazed to perceive the air quite dim, as if filled with smoke, and, while looking to the right hand and left, to find whence these blue wreaths issued, I became further aware of a strong smell of burning. Something creaked. It was a door ajar, and that door was Mr. Rochester's, and the smoke rushed in a cloud from thence. I thought no more of Mrs. Fairfax. I thought no more of Grace Poole or the laugh. In an instant, I was inside the chamber. Tongues of flame darted round the bed. The curtains were on fire. In the midst of the blaze and vapour, Mr. Rochester lay stretched motionless in deep sleep. Wake! Wake! I cried. I shook him, but he only murmured and turned. The smoke had stupefied him. Not a moment could be lost. The very sheets were kindling. I rushed to his basin and ewer. Fortunately, one was wide and the other deep, and both were filled with water. I heaved them up, deluged the bed and its occupant, flew back to my own room, brought my own water jug, baptized the couch afresh, and by God's aid succeeded in extinguishing the flames which were devouring it. The hiss of the quenched element, the breakage of a pitcher, which I flung from my hand, which I had emptied it, and, above all, the splash of the shower bath I had liberally bestowed, roused Mr. Rochester at last. Though it was now dark, I knew he was awake, because I heard him fulminating strange anathemas of finding himself lying in a pool of water. "'Is there a flood?' he cried. "'No, sir,' I answered. "'But there has been a fire.' Get up. Do. You are quenched now. I will fetch you a candle. In the name of all the elves in Christendom, is that Jane Eyre? He demanded. What have you done with me, witch? Sorceress. Who is in the room besides you? Have you plotted to drown me? I will fetch you a candle, sir, and in heaven's name get up. Somebody has plotted something. You cannot too soon find out who and what it is. There, I am up now, but at your peril you fetch a candle yet. Wait two minutes till I get into some dry garments, if any dry there be. Yes, here is my dressing gown. Now run. I did run. I brought the candle, which still remained in the gallery. He took it from my hand, held it up, and surveyed the bed, all blackened and scorched. The sheets drenched, the carpet round, swimming in water. "'What is it, and who did it?' he asked. "'I briefly related to him what had transpired, "'the strange laugh I had heard in the gallery, "'the step ascending to the third story, the smoke, "'the smell of fire which had conducted me to his room, "'in what state I had found the matters there, "'and how I had deluged him with all the water I could lay my hands on. "'He listened very gravely. "'His face, as I went on, expressed more concern than astonishment.' He did not immediately speak when I had concluded. "'Shall I call Mrs. Fairfax?' I asked. "'Mrs. Fairfax? No. What the juice will you call her for? What can she do? Let her sleep unmolested. Then I will fetch Leah, and wake John and his wife. Not at all. Just be still. You have a shawl on. If you are not warm enough, you may take my cloak yonder. Wrap it about you. And sit down in the armchair there. I will put it on. Now place your feet on the stool to keep them out of the wet. I am going to leave you for a few minutes. I shall take the candle. Remember where you are till I return. Be still as a mouse. I must pay a visit to the second story. Don't move, remember, or call anyone. He went. I watched the light withdraw. He passed up the gallery very softly and closed the staircase door with as little noise as possible, shut it after him, and the last ray vanished. I was left in total darkness, 
I listened for some noise, but heard nothing. A very long time elapsed. I grew weary. It was cold in spite of the cloak, and that I did not see the use of staying, as I was not to rouse the house. I was on the point of risking Mr. Rochester's displeasure by disobeying his orders when the light once more gleamed dimly on the gallery wall, and I heard his unshod feet tread the matting. I hope it is he, thought I, and not something worse. He re-entered, pale and very gloomy. I have found it all out, said he, setting his candle down on the washstand. It is as I thought. How, sir? He made no reply, but stood with his arms folded, looking on the ground. At the end of a few minutes, he inquired, in rather a peculiar tone, I forget whether you said you saw anything when you opened your chamber door. No, sir, only the candlestick on the ground. But you heard an odd laugh. You've heard that laugh before, I should think, or something like it. Yes, sir. There is a woman who sews here, called Grace Poole. She laughs in that way. She is a singular person. Just so. Grace Poole. You have guessed it. She is, as you say, singular. Very. Well, I shall reflect on the subject. Meantime, I am glad that you are the only person besides myself acquainted with the precise details of tonight's incident. You are no talking fool. Say nothing about it. I will account for this state of affairs. And now, return to your room. I should do very well on the sofa in the library for the rest of the night. It is near four. In two hours the servants will be up. Good night then, sir, said I, departing. He seemed surprised. Very inconsistently so, as he had just told me to go. What? he exclaimed. Are you quitting me already, in that way? You said I might go, sir. But not without taking leave, not without a word or two of acknowledgement and goodwill, not, in short, in that brief, dry fashion. Why, you have saved my life, snatched me from a horrible and excruciating death, and you walk past me as if we were mutual strangers. At least shake hands. He held out his hand. I gave him mine. He took it first in one, then in both of his own. You have saved my life. I have a pleasure in owing you so immense a debt. I cannot say more. Nothing else that has being would have been tolerable to me in the character of creditor for such an obligation. But you, it is different. I feel your benefits no burden, Jane. He paused, gazed at me. Words almost visible trembled on his lips, but his voice was checked. Good night again, sir. There is no debt, benefit, burden, obligation in the case. I knew, he continued, you would do me good in some way, at some time. I saw it in your eyes when I first beheld you. Their expression and smile did not, did not, strike delight to my very inmost heart so for nothing. People talk of natural sympathies. I have heard of good genii. There are grains of truth in the wildest fable. My cherished preserver, good night. Strange energy was now in his voice, strange fire in his look. I'm glad I happened to be awake, I said. And then I was going. What? You will go? I'm cold, sir. Cold? Yes, and standing in a pool. Go then, Jane, go. But he still retained my hand, but I could not free it. I bethought myself of an expedient. I think I hear Mrs. Fairfax move, sir, said I. Well, leave me. He relaxed his fingers, and I was gone. I regained my couch, but never thought of sleep. Till morning dawned, I was tossed on a buoyant but unquiet sea, where billows of trouble rolled under surges of joy. I thought sometimes I saw behind its wild waters a shore, 
sweet as the hills of Beulah, and now and then a freshening gale, wakened by hope, bore my spirit triumphantly towards the bourne, but I could not reach it, even in fancy. A counteracting breeze blew it off land and continually drove me back. Sense would resist delirium, judgment would warn passion, too feverish to rest. I rose as soon as the day dawned. And there we have a segment from Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Yes, I I selected this section because, yes, when I read it first, it genuinely was was chilling and charged and and we would we would compare um Jane Eyre and Dracula we would bundle them together in in terms of this overarching theme of gothic literature but again like I said they came out 50 years apart and yet there are so many echoes of the two of them in each scene while being very very different of course but the again the sexual energy is still there um in between jane and and mr rochester and the horror is still there by this mysterious fire which i will not uh, spoil the the cause of consider that extra encouragement to read the novel if you if you have not already but anyone who has read the book will know it's good it's a good twist in it um and opens a whole new world of intrigue and fascination into the book when it does. Um, but for Mr. Rochester himself, Mr. Rochester is one of these classic Byronic heroes, as they were called, in that he's changeable and mercurial and grumpy and charismatic and handsome and brutal and kind of everything. And why he works so well in Jane Eyre is because the book is entirely from her own thought process and as she tries to wrangle with this attraction to this very troubled man and that's what i i think that's glorious that introductory passage to him as because that has just followed her his first kindness to her since she arrived but she's also saying yes he was you know, like, I love to see him and I'm happy when I see him, but he's awful, you know, he's he's grumpy and if he's nice to me, he's definitely being horrible to someone else and that is what we do in our own heads. We try and rationalize and weigh up our attractions to people and and even in our friendships, you know, we we try and justify behavior and say, oh, no, no, they're actually all right or no, no, they're not, that's, that's a deal breaker and all and, it's amazing to see that um, written in such a, a contemporary way, like in its very heightened Victorian language, of course, but still the flow of it. For example, this was obviously quite a long passage and thus made this quite a long episode, which is no harm as well. The, these seasonal episodes usually are a bit longer. Um, but I did try and condense it a little bit, but I kind of couldn't. Uh, even as languid and flourishing as as a style as it's written in, it's very hard to cut beats from this story. It is quite tight in its action. We have this wonderful description of Rochester, and then it's straight away the fire and the following. And what I love is you get such a sense of the darkness of this time. You know, again, one of the things that's hard for us to grasp sometimes is not having any electrical light. So imagine being in this big, huge, old, you know, Georgian Victorian um, mansion, and is hearing noises in the night and having no way whatsoever to see. So just picturing Jane following this candle into Mister Rochester's room and seeing the room lit up, but in fire and the pyre on the bed and are having to extinguish that fire. And then when the fire is extinguished, and he's finally woken up, they're once again in total darkness. All he knows is that he's wet. He doesn't know who is in the room. He doesn't know what has happened. 
and the nearest light is far away it's out in the corridor and I love how Charlotte Bronte plays around with that sense of light and darkness because that the darkness is where our anxieties and our uncertainties live and such is where the realm of folklore begins and the things that go bump in the night um, and that just made it to me a wonderful wonderful segment so again highly recommend seems stupid to highly recommend a masterpiece of world literature but I also know sometimes classics can be a bit stuffy and when you read a book that's supposed to be amazing there's a certain pressure to read it because you feel if you don't like it that you're wrong um, or, or you feel like you're not clever enough sometimes to read it but Jane Eyre I genuinely found to be really accessible and really fun uh, and a really like delicious book to read um, so again for this time of year you wouldn't necessarily think of Charlotte Bronte when you think of Halloween but I think you should it's a wonderful gothic world to spend some time in so with that I will wrap things up but I hope you enjoyed the fifth fireside of horror a little bit different to previous ones and we usually have a bit more like poetry and songs and all, but I loved these two segments so much and they were quote quite lengthy, so I thought it'd better to do just these this duology of pieces um of early and late gothic literature. Uh, so let me know your thoughts, um let me know of your experiences with Dracula or Jane Eyre if you have had some. Um that comes to an end of our this is our 11, my 11th episode now released in the last two, three weeks, which is great to be nearly, nearly, nearly back on track to reach 250 episodes by the end of the year. Um, from now until the end of the year, we have a new plan. So I thought of this recently, as people who have been listening to the podcast a long time know, uh, Disney has played a huge role in like my early inspiration for for folklore, for storytelling, for the grim tales and for the Greek myths and all, and Disney is about to celebrate its 100th anniversary of uh, their total world domination. Um, but I thought I would explore some of the other folk tales. We've covered quite, we've actually covered a few of like Irish versions of tales that would later inspire Disney tales. But I'm going to have a little exploration onto some of the, the folklore origins of some of the Disney canon. Uh, because that always feels like it ties very nicely into Christmas as well, and that will hopefully take us up to the rest of the year until episode 250. So if you have any requests, if there's any Disney movies that you think have like a folklore, a folklorific or mythological origin, and you would like me to do a retelling of that tale, please do let me know. I will always take your considerations into account. Um, follow me over on Instagram at firesidebard. Email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. Buy my book, Garden Sea and Neo Myth of Home. Um, support the podcast at headstuffpodcasts.com and join Headstuff Plus. I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time. Remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.